0: Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. When you think of airport horror stories, the first thing that usually comes to mind are delays, layovers, or the chance of getting stuck next to the sweaty guy who smells like baloney and lops over onto your armrest. What you wouldn't think about are potentially seeing floating torsos carrying luggage off a jetway from a plane that's not even there. That sounds pretty crazy, right? Well, I'm sure it was crazy when the man videoed the phenomenon in 2017 while he was waiting to board his plane at Phuket International Airport in Thailand. Look it up. There's a video on YouTube. And you can give me a hundred different explanations on why someone saw that. Maybe they cracked up, but the guy videoed it, so that really doesn't make much sense. Okay, well then, you know what, Chris? It was a reflection of a window from a different jetway. Ha! Now what are you going to say? That could be, or it could be the souls of the passengers of a crash who finally got home. Atlantic Municipal Airport, part of Cass County, Iowa. It's one of the smallest operating airports in the country. 22 flights a day take off from Atlantic, and only as recent as 2006 did they finally get the ability to handle light jets. They mostly only deal with small Cessnas. In 1979, a young man named Alex Hartsfield experienced something in his life that stuck with him until this day. You see, Alex only graduated from Fordham a few years earlier and was still trying to figure himself out. It was during a trip he took with his family to Atlanta that made him want to get into air traffic controlling. The complexity of how it all worked filled him with delicious curiosity, and that was really all it took. By the time he was 27, he had all the certifications he needed to begin his career. Now I'm sure, like all young, ambitious air traffic controllers, he was hoping to land a gig at either JFK or maybe even perhaps LAX. I guess. I have no idea what young, ambitious, ambition. Why can't I say that word? That's a hard word to say. Young, ambitious air traffic controllers. I have no idea what they want. That's what I would want if I was a young, ambitious air traffic controller, JFK or LAX in the 70s. Are you kidding me? You know, a place with some action. And again, like all young, ambitious people, he had those dreams slashed right before his eyes when he was stationed at Atlantic Municipal Airport in Atlantic, Iowa. A place at that time that wouldn't even be big enough to warrant an Annie Ann's pretzel shop. It was a single lane landing strip, slapped right dead center in the middle of two cornfields. Huh. But hey, we all have to start somewhere. And Ox was a young man. He'd make it to the big city in no time. And this was a good place as any to start and pay his dues. Most airports of this size usually only held normal work hours. An 8 to 4 or a 9 to 5 deal? No problem, no sweat, Alex thought. But remember folks, location is everything. And this particular middle of nowhere landing strip was just middle of nowhere enough that it had tons of air traffic overhead. And it was placed just right Geographically, that if one of the big commercial planes that passed over Atlantic were to find itself in some trouble, it would be the perfect place for an emergency landing. Just Alex's luck. Are you kidding me? So instead of Alex landing himself a crappy day job, Alex upped the ante and landed himself a crappy night job. The 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift. Just Alex, Joe, the night security guard, who would mostly be sleeping in his truck, and the corn. The rows and rows of corn. What could possibly go on overnight at this airport? And I used the word airport for Atlantic very, very loosely. Well, I'll tell you what went on. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But hey, if you're like me, this isn't all that bad. Plenty of time to catch up on reading. And you know what? I can even win an imaginary argument or two with people who have long since forgotten my name. And on February 20th, 1979, Alex was doing just that. Nah, not the arguing, but he was probably reading. I bet there was probably even a crossword involved. It was around 1 a.m. when he received a radio message from a small Cessna. They were a little over 30 miles from Atlantic on their way to Omaha, but Omaha was in the middle of getting pounded with a snowstorm. They needed to land in Atlantic and wait out the storm. Alex's job And his paycheck Are finally justified He checked his instruments Whipped out his binoculars And checked on the visibility And gave that Cessna The all clear of the head on in He even told him He'd have the coffee ready For when he They even For when Those folks In those words I was trying to say Get there As he was going Through the motions And guiding the aircraft In for that landing That's when he saw it For the first time A woman A woman? Now, there's about a thousand things wrong with this. First, the woman was just strolling down the runway like it was in the middle of the afternoon. Second, Joe the security guard was nowhere to be seen. guy was probably in the middle of his steamy dream right now. Third was what she was wearing. Now, the runway is about 150 yards from the tower, and Alex was looking through binoculars. But he could have sworn that she was barefoot and only wearing a light blue nightgown. He couldn't imagine how cold she was. It was Iowa in February. So the temperature was probably sitting in the low negatives. But there she was, walking along without a care in the world. It was just then when Alex snapped back into the moment and remembered, Oh, right, there's a plane coming in. Just as it touched down and stopped about 20 yards from where she was standing. Now the conversation between Alex and the pilot of Flight 87 obviously isn't recorded anywhere. And all that dialogue transpired is purely based on memory. But I am assured that this is how it went. Word for word. Word that Mr. Hartsfield has never forgotten. I'll do my best to do those words judgment. Or justice. Judgment? Do those? I'll do my best to do those words justice. He's probably got the wrong guy. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history. Unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. Flight 87, this is Alex Hartfield from Control. Good to hear from you, Alex. Hope the coffee is hot. Do you happen to see a woman at 10 o'clock? She's walking in your direction. Let me have a look, Control. Well, I'll be. She's got to be freezing. At that moment, Alex heard the click of the radio and saw motion in the plane through his binoculars. The plane's door opened and the little stairs folded down. The pilot with that wonderful voice emerged from the plane and gave a big overhand wave up towards the control tower. He then proceeded to walk towards the woman. Now, Alex, at this moment, admits in conversation that he was just kind of having fun with what was going on. Nothing exciting like this ever happens on the night shift, and he was sure as shit nothing ever exciting happens in Atlantic, Iowa. He couldn't wait to wake up Joe and have the pilot of Flight 87 himself find out this woman's story. He began to wonder if he should call the local sheriff when the pilot and the woman reached each other. Through his binoculars, he could see that the pilot was saying something to the woman. The woman looked as if she was standing on her tiptoes, like she was whispering something into the pilot's ear. This went on for about 10, 15 seconds, when Alex saw the pilot's head jerk back, like he was snapping himself out of a trance. That's when he saw him turn. And, uh, and run? Back to his plane? Well, he, Alex was completely dumbfounded. He grabbed the radio once he saw the propellers fire up. Flight 87, this is control. What are you doing? No answer. Flight 87, this is control. What is happening down there? Still nothing. The plane is starting to move. Speeding up. Flight 87, you do not have permission to take off. I repeat, you do not have permission to take off. Still no answer. The plane just kept speeding its way up the runway. There was nothing to be done now except check the sky to make sure there was no planes overhead. sky was clear. Alex decided to try one more time just to get the Cessna was lifting off the ground. Flight 87, this is air traffic control. Pardon my French, but what the fuck is going on? Come back. That's when the radio started to come back with static. White noise. Flight 87, please repeat. What a night. Alex began to think more white noise pouring in when a voice broke through run flight 87 did did you just say run come back come back please but there was nothing flight 87 was gone Alex sank into his chair trying to wrap his head around that run the fuck did he have meant run The woman. Alex grabbed for his binoculars and sprung to his feet. There she was, standing in the middle of the runway, staring up at him, looking directly into his eyes. Now, I know how that sounds. At over a hundred yards and through binoculars. But he knows. She was looking directly into his eyes. He felt her stare and the goose flesh that now covered his body. Before he can even think about what was going on, she was running towards the control tower. You know what? Running is the wrong word. She was in a full sprint. Everything about this was wrong. Alex grabbed the security radio and began screaming for Joe to pick up. He looked toward the door, deciding on if he wanted to venture downstairs and look for Joe, when he heard the doors to the control tower explode open in a violent crash. He didn't know what to do or how to react. This obviously wasn't a rational situation. If this were terrorists or something like what the FAA taught him to handle, his training would kick in, and he would know exactly how to handle this. But this was different. Was this malicious? It was certainly strange. And it was that weirdness that made him do what he did next. Run, and lock himself in the bathroom. Standing behind the door, leaning against it, he heard the door to the control room open. He was hoping to hear Joe's voice. He was expecting to hear soft footsteps like in the movies when the invader is looking for their victim watching the shadow grow from under the door as they approached? Well, that didn't happen. What did happen was pure and utter chaos. An explosion of tremendous noise shook the door. The sound of glass shattering and metal ripping like tissue paper filled the next room. The sound was so staggering and absolutely fantastic that Alex, for a brief moment, almost opened the door, if only to see for himself what the hell was going on in there. The bang at the door that knocked him off his feet and down to the chilled tile floor was what brought him back to the moment. And then just like that, silence. Now, I can tell you that after a few minutes of no sound whatsoever, Alex bravely got up and opened the door to check on that now quiet control room. That the deafening sound of his own heartbeat was driving Alex to make what could have been the stupidest decision of his young life. But I'd be lying. Alex just laid there listening to his pulse, to his stomach churn, until 7.45 in the morning, when finally, a voice came from the next room. A gasping, What the fuck? from Charlie, the morning shift controller. When Alex opened the door, he was taken back by a scene of total destruction. Radar monitors smashed in, manuscripts shredded into ribbons, radios ripped out. Wire, glass, and metal all over the floor like confetti. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. When the police arrived, Alex gave a full report to some curious glances. Joe was fired after admitting, under some pretty light questioning, that he didn't see anything because he was asleep at the wheel. Police had no idea what to make of this. The police urged them to immediately report anything suspicious in the future, took a ton of photos, and went on their way. There were some brief talks about installing security cameras, which in 1979 wasn't all that common, but that never really turned into anything more than just talk. When it was all said and done, it was going to take 12 days to fully repair all the equipment and get the control room back to working condition. During Alex's break, he took that time to get himself sorted out. Convince himself that it was maybe an escaped mental patient or someone high on crank or speed, the kids in all these farm towns would huff just about anything to kill all the boredom. There had to be a logical explanation. As the days went on, Alex was able to push it further and further to the back of his mind. And by the time March 4th rolled around, Alex was ready to go back to work. The control room was as good as new. He was a little uneasy about going back on the night shift, but was convinced that whoever caused all that madness was long gone. The next month or so was uneventful for Alex. Nothing but late night crossword puzzles and a whole lot of coffee. Iowa was in risk of getting hit with one of those rare April snowstorms. They were comparing what was coming to the blizzard of 73 that dumped over 20 inches on Atlantic and left snowdrifts 16 feet tall. If something like this were to happen, there was no doubt that Alex would be stranded. At around 11 p.m. that night, the snow was coming down pretty heavy, and Alex received a communication from a private jet that was about 50 miles out. They were experiencing heavy winds and asked for permission to land immediately. Now, a jet that size in 1979 would traditionally be too big to land in Atlantic. But emergencies like this called for overriding the guidelines. Flight 676 was told to remain in contact and was cleared to land. You know, luckily for Alex, the runway was cleared and de-iced by the cleanup crew before they went home and should have still been in pretty good shape. He stood from his chair to look down the strip from the control tower. And that's when he saw her. Slowly strolling across the runway again. Bare feet, almost gliding on the asphalt. Staring up at Alex. Staring into the snow and wind, not blinking. That was what was most disturbing. On retelling this story to me, that's what really, really stuck with him. The not blinking. Snow and 40 mile-per-hour winds, 40 mile-per-hour... As opposed to forty mile per hour winds, these you see in Iowa, there's these certain different winds that are called mile per hour. So, just so you guys know, this was not a mistake on my part. This is an actual thing that happens. It's all very technical, but we're not going to get into it. Let's continue the story. The wind was blasting her directly in the face. That's what I was getting at. You understood, but she wouldn't blink. The wind and the snow whipping into her face, and she would not blink. Her icy stare maintained its direction, pointed straight at Alex. Alex quickly grabbed for the radio to tell Flight 676 to maintain altitude until further communication. But no, they had to land. 676 could not maintain in these conditions. They had to touch down. They were six minutes out. You know, he couldn't risk the lives of the people on that plane, so he cleared them to land. Alex had to act now. He looked back out onto the runway. She was about 50 yards or so from the tower, slowly making her way closer and closer. Now a lone air traffic controller should under no circumstance leave the control tower. But he knew she was close, and she was coming in. Alex ran down the stairs and locked the doors to the tower, running back up to get to the radio when he looked back out onto the runway. She was gone. A wave of relief came over Alex. And that's when the radio clicked on. Control, we're almost flying blind up here. We're approaching the runway. Please advise. Rotate three degrees right. Acknowledge. Copy that, Control. We see the lights. See you soon. At that moment, a loud crash echoed through the tower. Alex didn't want to believe it. He locked the door. There is no way... Unless the storm is getting that bad and the wind shattered the doors. That idea was dashed from his head the moment he heard the footsteps on the stairs. The footsteps were getting louder. Expecting them to be quick, he was taken aback by how loud they were. Like she was forcibly slamming her feet down on each step as she made her approach. 676, this is Control. You are clear to land. The control room doors opened. This was the moment when Alex realized how afraid he was. This was real. He he couldn't turn around. He was paralyzed with fear. The only thing he could do was stare at his instrument panel and clutch the radio, completely unable to turn his face about what was coming behind him. Traffic control, we're about 30 seconds out. Came from the radio in his hand. Teeth chattering, he stuttered. All... Oh, clear. That's when he felt the icy breath on the back of his neck. He could feel her directly behind him. He could feel her lips making their way up the side of his face to his ear. Though he couldn't see her out of the corner of his eye, whispering, she muttered, Now, some would say maybe that the chance of actually hearing a voice would maybe, possibly, kinda, sorta, thousand to one chance to defuse that situation. But the voice was different. It was cold. Inhuman. But what frightened Alex most was the anger that he felt in the voice the rage that he could feel through just a whisper and just then touch down control flight 676 is on the ground from behind him he could feel the woman snap back and he can hear the footsteps as she ran down the stairs Alex forced himself to get up and run to try and catch a glimpse of her running barefoot out the door when he got back to the window she was nowhere to be seen Alex welcomed Flight 676 and radioed to the new security guard. He showed up a few minutes later, did his walk around the building, but there was no trace of the woman. The snow that night ended up not being as bad as forecasted, and the feeling of relief washed over Alex when the police showed up less than 30 minutes after the call. They did a thorough search of the building, but nothing turned up. They did note that they saw a set of tracks coming from the cornfield, but none going back. Alex never saw the woman again. And this story he kept mostly to himself, besides the few times he shared it with family. And now, I share it with you. Ghost stories are everywhere. Places like Salem, Massachusetts and Gettysburg are famous for the tales of hauntings and ghost sightings. You don't generally associate stories like this with a place like Atlantic, Iowa. But, like, you probably don't associate those stories with your own hometown. But I'm sure if you dig around ask a relative or two, you may find that stories like this are a lot more common than you think. During the late evening of June 10th and the early morning of June 11th, 1912, the six members of the Moore family and two house guests were found bludgeoned in the Moore residence. All eight victims, including six children, had severe head wounds from an axe. A lengthy investigation yielded several suspects, one of whom was tried twice. The first trial ended in a hung jury and the second ended in an acquittal. The crime remains unsolved. Experts claim that something supernatural had to take place as the entire House of People remained asleep during the attack. No weapon was found. Those murders took place in a small town called Vallisca. Villisca, Iowa. Vallisca, Iowa is about 40 minutes southwest of Atlantic Municipal Airport. From the pages of the Iowa World Herald, Judith May died on Sunday, February 1st, 2015, after her truck slid off the road into a snowbank a mile and a half from her destination. Sheriff Lance Darby said May was not dressed for the cold. Her body was 200 yards from her vehicle. She was found wearing a light-colored nightgown and no socks. Her slip-on shoes were still in her truck. Judith's brother, Fred, told reporters his sister was heading into Atlantic for a brief shopping trip. We'll never really know what happened, he said. She drove that truck every day. She was in good physical shape. She just got too cold. When you're not dressed for it, bad things happen. My name is Christopher Feinstein. And this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin MacLeod.